Tonight, Hebrews 12. Pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, again, ties it to the last chapter. We also, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race or run with endurance the race that is set before us. One of my favorite verses. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. And you have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked or chastened by him. For whom the Lord he loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? And if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subject to the father of spirits? And live? For indeed, they for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. And now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have, notice, been trained by it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an amazing section of Scripture. And Lord, that you would just bless our time and bless our hearts through this section as we learn more about the Father and what the Son went through on our behalf and what is our part in this human experience. And so, Lord, thank you for those serving in youth and children's ministry. You bless our time and bless those, Lord, over the radio and over the internet now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And what the writer of Hebrews now does is he takes all 11 of those chapters and he says, therefore, he is taking this group of Hebrews who are contemplating going back. In fact, you can pick up on what he is saying in verse 5 about the chastening of the Lord. It would seem that they're saying, hey, we became believers. How is this fair? We're getting beat up upon. And he is going to then describe to them and to us 
why God allows what he allows in our life. But before he does that, he wants us to know that it is a race set before you. Maybe uh, when we tell people about Jesus, we should say, welcome to the race, here's your number. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight, about racing and about what you should be doing and not be doing. And so the writer wants us to know that when, when we come into the stadium, it's like that marathon run. And you, they, they set out, right, and they, at the end of the Olympics, what do they do? They make that 26 miles, the last mile. They come inside of the arena, and they run around. I don't know if they run one lap around or whatever, but they run that last uh, lap around, and then they are finished. Well, the writer tells us that there is a, a great cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses were in chapter 11 and those that have gone before us. Now, I, I want to make this point, and I know it's somewhere in my notes, but I want to make this point. They are not looking at us running the race because if that is the case, heaven wouldn't be heaven. They're not looking down on us and saying, Go, Johnny. Go, Susie. Go. We're going to see that the word witness means martyr. And see, they've already done the heavy lifting in their life, and they are examples for us that it can be run and it can be won, this life of faith. And that is the good news of chapter 11 and those that have gone before us. And I know that I've mentioned this, I'm just in this season, I don't know why God has me in this season of reading some great biographies, but I have done that in the past in my life, and I am enjoying listening to the great cloud of witness that have gone before us in these modern last couple of hundred years. It encourages my faith and strengthens me, and then on, on, on other days I sit there and go, I'm just a pile of manure. Anybody? You read somebody like Bonhoeffer, even Martin Luther, and you go, I stink. I complain when there's no Wi-Fi. Or the Ely Coffee's not working at the Charlotte Airport. I've done that before. We, comp we have first world problems. I know I've been saying that for the last year. We have all of these first world problems. These men and women that have gone before us, they didn't have those problems. They had real problems like eating and not dying by the edge of the sword or in a communist country waiting for their Bible study to be broken up and to be put in a gulag. And it is wonderful for us to be where we are in God's word. For whatever reason, God has us here in 2021 to see who have gone before us, to learn from that, and to know why God is doing what he is doing in our own lives. And say no more, it's not fair. To say, Lord, I'm excited about what you're about to do. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. So this chapter, if you were to put a word on it, it would be hupomone. It would be our favorite Greek word for endurance, patience. You see, the Jewish believers 
who received this letter were growing weary and wanted to give up. But the writer encouraged them to keep moving forward in their Christian life. Like runners on a track, keep running your race. There's going to be issues in your life. Listen, let me just, this is free. Are you ready for it? The Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It's actually longer than a 26-mile marathon. It goes when you sign up until you hear the trumpet blow or you breathe your last. It is that kind of race. And what you need to know is you need to have endurance. You need to have patience in 2020. You need to have patience with kids. You need to have patience with your elderly parents and your job and all of these things that God is calling us to live our life, our race. We're going to see it's an individual race. It's not a group effort. Now, it is a group effort in that there is the body of Christ. But God is calling us each individually to run a race. And Eli, some of you, you're like, man, I haven't seen a hurdle in weeks or months or years. Just wait. You may have to pole vault. How many of you have pole vaulted lately? You're like, I don't know how I'm in the air, but I'm in the air. (laughs) That's why I love track and field. And you got to remember that the writer, like Paul the Apostle, loved athletics. The Greco-Roman world of this day, they, they loved athletics and they used it in illustrations. And so this great cloud of witness They are not mere spectators. Our English word martyr comes from this Greek word witness. These people are not witnessing what we're doing. Rather, they are bearing witness to us, again, like I said, that they and us, that they, uh, they made it through and that we can too. Again, I am grieved by so many churches that don't want to study the Old Testament and they're missing an entire group of people that are the Hebrews 11 runners and that's showing through their endurance and through their pains and their trials. Can you imagine someone never knowing about Job? I mean, how would you get through being a Christian? Was that not the first book you're like, man, that guy's got it rough, but I got it like Job. And you're pretty encouraged. Even a guy like Peter, like, I say dumb things, but I don't say that like in front of Jesus. (laughs) Oh, you do. He hears everything. Don't be fooled. Peter's like, uh, yeah. But we look at these people and we go, thank you, Lord, for putting them on the pages of Scripture. It's like Sunday and going through that God is going to pull out the righteous before his wrath is poured on. Lord, thank you for Daniel and Enoch and Lot and showing us the path and the types in the picture. But it's funny here in verse 1, and we're going to get out of verse 1 maybe. But there is a rare time in the Bible where the writer wants you to look at yourself. It's rare. And we're going to see, he tells us to look unto Jesus. So he first wants us to look at ourselves, and then he wants us to look unto Jesus. Because if you look at yourself too long, who will get depressed? Right? So, 
but he wants us to take inventory and to note something about ourselves. Again, athletics, this is the example the writer brings up. He's going to bring up training. We know, well, maybe you don't know, that these runners in the early times, uh, well, we'll get to in a minute, but they used to run naked unhindered, without anything. They didn't want anything to hinder them from running the race. But before they did that, they trained with weights. Much like baseball today, right? You see a baseball player, what does he do? He puts one of those heavy donuts on and he swings it and right before he gets up there and now he's all loosened up. But what if we watched a baseball player not take it off and keep loading up the weights? Like that guy's not going to hit anything. He's going to barely move that bat around. And so the writer wants us to look at ourselves and see if we have a problem in our race, our individual race. I want to to tell you right off the bat, stop looking at other people and how they are running their race. You run your race because it's only you and Jesus who will be having the conversation about how you ran your race. You don't get to bring up, well, my wife, my kid, my this, my that. He's going to say, oy vey. He's Jewish. So what does the writer say? He says, let us lay aside every weight. So what are the weights? And what should we remove that we might win this race? And the idea of winning the race, again, it's not a competition with other believers. You don't run, but you're like, woohoo, I'm passing you. It's not a competition. It is, how am I running my race for Jesus? And what do I need to do to continue to run my race and not get tired out? <laughs> I tell you, the, uh, Arrowwood should be just a training location for the Olympics. Man, you can get so winded so quick. Every, look, look at the people nodding their head that have been to Arrowwood. You just go from the house to the barn. You're like, was that like 1,000 feet? It was like 100 feet. What does that tell us? It tells us a lot of us are out of shape, me included. So what do I need to do? What if I'm out of shape running this race for Jesus? Well, what do I need to do to get into shape so I can run this race better and longer and keep going and keep giving God the glory? Amen. So what are these weights? Well, it's everything that hinders our process that might even be good things in the eyes of others. Listen to that phrase again. In the eyes of others, it may be okay for them, but for you, it's not okay. How do I know that? God's going to tell you that. How how am I going to know that? He's going to tell you that in his word, by a message. You're going to be sitting here, you're like... Man, I've been thinking about that for a while, and God just told me I'm not supposed to have that. But my neighbor can have that, or the person on the other side of the chair may have that liberty in Christ, but for you, God says, nada. You don't need that. Because that extra thing is keeping you from running your race. Well, in fact, you're winded when you do it. 
A winning athlete does not choose between the good and the bad. He chooses between the better and the best. What is going to make me the best runner? Now, he says, laying aside every weight and the sin, and we're going to talk about sin and weight. We're going to come back and forth between these two. But sin can also hold us back. There are things that may not be sin, which are the every weight, but are merely hindrances that keep us from running effectively the race that God has for us. You ever wonder why you're doing what God has called you to do, but it seems such like a struggle? Like, Lord, I know that you're called me to do this, but man, is it rough. Well, you might have some kind of weight around you. Our choices are not always between, again, right or wrong, but between something that may hinder us and something else that may not hinder us. Is there a weight? This is a great question for us today. Is there a weight in your life that you need to lay aside? I don't know. John Corson had a great commentary on this idea. Again, he said, weight is not necessarily a sin. It's just stuff. He, he talks of a woman who dreamed a, a dream about the rapture was taking place. But much to her consternation, while everyone else was zooming up, it was a struggle for her to even get 20 feet off the ground. Looking down, the woman saw, the, she saw the problem. The problem was on her ankle was a rope, and at the other end of the rope was her furniture. <laughs> she awoke and she realized that the Lord was telling her that she was tied down by her possessions. Her weight was the, her stuff. And at the end of the day, guys, it's just stuff. And you know that you have to polish your stuff and you have to insure your stuff. Stuff is okay as long as your stuff doesn't have you, like this woman, tied down. Well, I can't run that race. I can't do that for the Lord because I'm tied to this. Notice it says, so easily ensnares us. The, trans the, the translation of this Greek word is actually pretty difficult into the English. <laughs> it has four ways that it can be translated. This is why the Greek language is much better than our language. But there are four ways to translate this easily ensnares us, and it's these four. It can be translated easily avoided, admired, ensnaring, or dangerous. So some sins can be easily avoided, but oftentimes they're not in our own life. Some sins are admired, yet must be laid aside. Some sins are ensnaring and especially harmful. And as we know, there are other sins that are more dangerous than the others, and they must lay them all aside. And again, he tells us to run with endurance, hoopamony, to keep going. It's a long-distance race. Now, did... I'm not a guy who often looks into the Greek word of this. Or I mean, have you ever been somewhere where the guy broke out every Greek word in a verse, and you're like, wow, that took a long time to get through that verse. But there are some words that are important for us to look at. And I don't know if you know what the word 
race means in Greek, but it's where it's where we get our word agony from. You're like, I didn't see that in the fine print. The word race is used for conflict or struggle of many kinds. Paul uses this word conflict or agony some five or six times in his writings. So we are running an agonizing race. Woo! Did you hear that? That's why, look, if the race is agonizing, why add more weight to it? Got it? Doesn't make, now it's, all right, I'm starting to understand what the writer is saying. Again, the race is not a competition against other believers. Please stop looking at how others are running their race and you fix your eyes upon the prize and that prize is Jesus. Again, lastly, he says that we run that race with endurance. Again, it's our word hupomone in the Greek which does not mean that the patience which sits down and accepts the things that patience which I'm sorry, let me do that again. It does not mean the patience which sits down and accepts things. But it is a patience which masters those things. It doesn't say, well, this is my lot. It says, lot schmat, I'm going to take control of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is determination, unhurrying, and yet undelaying, which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected, Barclay in his commentary. Now, the writer wants us to look at us, right? But notice he only wants to do that in one verse. And now what does he want us to do? He wants us to look unto Jesus, verse 2 the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're taking note, the phrase looking, or the word looking, is only used one time in the Bible, and it's only used here. The only one time. It means to consider intently, Strong's commentary, or to look, but I like what Thayer's definition says. It says this, to turn their eyes away from other things and fix them on something else. And what is that something else here? It is Jesus. You see, this is the essence of Christianity. In the beginning, Satan turned Eve's eye away from God, did he not? Look at that shiny whatever. He turned her eyes away from God towards worldly pursuits. You can have knowledge. You could be like the Most High God. Now we struggle as sons and daughters of the Most High God to fix our priorities and pursuits back on the one who has set us free from the worldly needs and desires. So when we look unto Jesus... We are taking our eyes of everything else. Now, put that on the race. How effectively, how many of you have ever run track? 
Let's show hands. Okay. Did your track coach tell you, don't look behind you? Look ahead. Because if you're looking left or right or behind you, you're not doing what you are supposed to be doing. Again, I in my race, you in your race, all we look forward is to Jesus. So when he says we're running this race with endurance that is set before us, we run to Jesus. Why? Because he is the author, or better, he is the pioneer of our faith. In a sense that he has provided us the only perfect, perfect example of the life of faith and what it's like. In Hebrews 11, it tells us that it can be won by imperfect men and women. Jesus shows us the perfect faith lived out by the Holy Spirit. But notice he is also the finisher of our faith. He not only began the race, but he finished it triumphantly. For him to run his course, it stretched from heaven to Bethlehem, then to Gethsemane and Calvary, and then out of the tomb and then back into heaven. I love this phrase that's coming up, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does sitting do? <laughs> You're no longer working. There is, it is completed to telestai upon the cross. It is finished I have done what I've been called to do. Yet he kept his eyes fixed on the coming glory when all the redeemed would be gathered with him in eternity. We're going to see that it was, he, he went through everything that he went through. He was happy, joy, because he knew on the, now listen, he wasn't happy about the pain and the suffering. He was happy that when it was going to be completed, that you and I would be able to walk in. That we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice it says, for the joy that was set before him. Again, Jesus did not regard the cross itself as joy, but he could look past the horror of the cross to enjoy the joy beyond it. I don't want to say it this way, but we too can look past the horror of our lives. Not that it is because we have first world problems, amen? There are other people that have real horrors in their life around this world. But we can look past all of the pain and the suffering and the trials and see that what is coming up is greater than anything that we went through here on planet Earth. This same mentality was enabling those Jewish Christians and us, but mainly them, to endure what they are enduring. What are they enduring? Persecution, shame, being ostracized from their family, telling them that they're Jesus freaks, getting fired from their jobs. This is all that was going on during this time. It also says that he despised the shame. One of the most prominent elements of the torture of the cross was was. It's extreme shame. Jesus did not welcome this shame. He despised it. Yet he endured through that shame. Some good old dead guys had some great thoughts about this section. And they said it this way. This is a stumbling block to many. 
They will do just about anything for Jesus except endure shame and embarrassment. Spurgeon spoke boldly to Christians who could not bear the shame that comes from the world for following Jesus. And he said, yet you are a coward. (laughs) I would love to hear this message. He says, yet you're a coward. Yes, put it down in English. You're a coward. If anyone calls you so, you would turn red in the face. And perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ. Brave for the world, but cowardly towards Christ. How many people are willing to despise the shame like Christ? But again, there it is at the end. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a finished work. It's done. Again, this speaks of Jesus' glorification. The same promise of being glorified after our shame. Listen, we too will be glorified. We too will have new bodies. We too will be like him, Paul says. And then he further tells us in verse 3, for consider him. And the idea of the word consider means to sit down and think about it. Have you just sat down and thought about the life of Jesus? He says the Son of Man has nowhere to put his head. Jesus had no possessions. He ate at the mercy of his father. People would bring him food. Jesus probably didn't have multiple changes of clothes. Oftentimes, I mean, who wants to be around those 12? I mean, your own family thinks you're crazy. Your brothers don't believe in you. Your mom kind of. But she also wants to put you in a loony bin. But consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. He wants the writer, the writer wants the Hebrews to know, look to what Jesus went through And then look at your own life and see if it's even close. You ever do that? You're like, man, this is tough. Then you're like, oh, not like Jesus. Not like Job. Not like David. Not like the other heroes of faith. Paul wrote in Romans 8 verse 17, he said, If we indeed will suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. Again, Jesus identifying it with us. And if Jesus was able, listen, to endure such hostility from sinners against himself, he tells them and tells us, then don't become weary and discouraged in your soul. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Let me, t- let, me, let me give you something free at the end. I've read the end of Revelation. Maybe you have. We win. Evil loses. 
Satan gets to be thrown in. I can't wait to see that. You know, the Bible says that we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be seeing this and we're going to see the devil come out and we're all going to go, that was it? That's the guy? That, that's the guy who has been tormenting and deceiving and lying the world for 6,000 years? That's the guy? We were all afraid of that guy? He says, but you have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. The idea is it hasn't got to the place of Jesus yet. It will, and it does, and Peter will talk about that. And we will get to Peter soon as well. And now, verse 5, he starts us into the, they're saying, why is this happening to us? We became Christians. Why is this going on? Why is the persecution? Why does my family hate me? Why did I lose my job? Why did this happen into my life? Why, why, why? And he's going to tell us. He says in verse 5, and you have forgotten. Circle that. You know what we forget? That we're not God. He is. And aren't we glad we are not? There'd be a lot less traffic, I'll tell you that. (laughs) He says, but you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Now listen to that. Sons and daughter of the Most High. He says, you and I are royalty. We know that. We are a royal priesthood. Guys, we, you know, in the United States of America, we could care less about royalty, right? Except for Americans are really interested in what goes on with the British crown. Those TV shows always get high ratings. All right, I admit, I watched them all. (laughs) But you look at them and they're like, they're all taken care of. They live in this house and they got all these perks and all that. And you're like, man... The Christian doesn't realize he has all of that and more in eternity at his disposal. We're royalty. I'm Sir Ron. I would like you to use that from now on. Or Lord Ron. We'll use them interchangeable. Your eminence. Something we're, we're choosing. He says, you have forgotten. And I think this happens a lot with us. We forget our position, and what Christ has called us to be. His kids, his emissary. We are ambassadors for Christ. Not only that, we are his poem. We are his workmanship. You are his work of art. God does not make mistakes, amen? He knows what gender you are. He didn't make a mistake. He knows. He knows who you are. He knows what he created. He has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. But we tend to forget. And what are we forgetting? He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked or chastened by him. So the Christian view of suffering is now presented. Why does persecution Testings, trials, sickness, pain, sorrow, and trouble come into the life of the believer. If we're the king's kids, why does this happen to us? Are they a sign of God's anger and displeasure? Do they happen by chance? And how should we react by them? 
Remember, from an Old Testament point of view, if you were healthy and wealthy, that was a, a sign of God's pleasure upon you. If things were going wrong in your life and you were having problems, that it was a sign that God was angry with you. Listen, that's what they thought. How do I know that? Is that not what Job's friends said to him? Job, you've made God mad. You just need to repent. You ever had anybody tell you that? And you're like, but I haven't done anything. That's what Job said. He goes, you guys are in error. I haven't done anything wrong. In fact, God's going to come to Job's defense at the end and call them and say, you guys just need to shut up. Don't you, love, don't you want God to just say that to your friends on Facebook? <laughs> like, God, shut thy mouth. Because we know God speaks in the King James. So these verses teach us the things are part of God's educational process for his children. Oh, you didn't know that you're in the school of God, did you? Although they do not always come from God, he does permit them, and then he overrules them for his glory and for our good and for our blessing and the blessing of others. Nothing happens by chance. There is no luck, even though I'm Irish. There is no such thing. There is no chance. There is no happenstance. There is a plan and a purpose, and God uses things. Just like Joseph told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, man and the devil always want to usurp God's plan, and he goes, go ahead, I'll turn it out for good. I'll make this kid second in command of all Egypt. Not only that, is I'll provide for the entire known world at the time through the Jewish boy. But what did the devil send out to do? His brothers, by envy, put him in the pit and then sold him to the Ishmael traders. See, slavery goes all the way back. It's not something new. There has always been inequality because that's the human experience. Yeah, I said that. So the early Hebrew believers, again, were exhorted and us to remember. Listen, God addressed them from this proverb, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. Let me read it to you. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so... God lets us know through that verse that, listen, a loving father, listen, schools his children. And so he says, from whom, verse 6, the, uh, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. <laughs> That's it. When we read the word chastening or chastisement or scourging, and we're like, that doesn't sound very good. And we tend to think that it's a whooping, like God went out and told us to get our own switch. Did you ever have any parents that made you go out and get your own a weapon of destruction for your bottom? That's cruel and unusual punishment, right? That's mental abuse right there. You go out and get your own implement. 
But here the word means child training or child education. It's an education. Not only are we running a race, but we are being schooled as well. Again, it includes instruction, discipline, correction, and warning. All are designed to cultivate Christian values and virtues that will remove the evil or remove the weight, remove the sin out of our life. Again, we think of chastening as punishment, but it's simply, as Jesus said, pruning. And listen, I'm sure if we were pulling trees, does it feel good to be pruned? They're like, no, it hurts. But I don't know about you, but we've got trees in our backyard. We have to prune dead limbs off of them all the time. I'll tell you, up at the property, we... The, constantly when we're cutting the grass and I'm looking up at the trees, I see all of these huge limbs. They're called widow makers for a reason because you need to remove the dead because if not, the dead can hurt other people. Stuff in our life that just needs to get out. And in order to produce more fruit, we have a persimmon tree in our backyard and it is giving me all kinds of consternation. It is a tree, for whatever reason, has very heavy limbs that like just to bend like this. And we're tying them all up. Well, over the wintertime, we cut this huge main side of it that was literally ripping the trunk in two. And if I did not do that, if I did not pull off something that was bearing fruit last year that the, that the squirrels and we think the raccoons got, If I did not take that, it would have ripped that tree apart. Well, now it is hopefully healing itself. And again, taking time to prune it so that it would bear more fruit, ultimately get stronger as a tree. That, that's what God does with his chastisement, with his rebuke, with his schooling. Again, this passage in Proverbs distinctly states that God's discipline is a proof of his love and no son or daughter escapes chastisement. You're like, I don't, you ever hear your parents say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? That's a lie. But we just say it anyway. <laughs> Listen, that's, God loves us enough to not keep us in the state that we are. Isn't that wonderful? God loves us so much that he wants you to have more bearing fruit and glory to God. And sometimes he just has to take... Those of you... uh, Catherine knows this. She's a... I was trying to think of the right word, but a tree pruner or maintenance person for a long time. Landscape maintenance. That's the word, landscape. And sometimes you use just a little hand clipper, right? Then sometimes you have to get that lopper out, don't you? You know that lopper? Then sometimes you have to get a chainsaw. God would love to prune us with hand clippers. But the longer we go in disobedience to God, he, if you hear that, you're like, something bad is about to happen because I'd rather hear click than vroom. See, 
God doesn't allow his children to sin successfully. And he wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of him. And he says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? (laughs) So when testing comes to us, we soon realize that God is treating us as sons and daughters. In a normal father-son relationship, the father trains his son because he loves him and he wants the best for him. And so God loves us too much for us to develop, for us to develop naturally or worldly. And so he, he brings us in and he helps us and he teaches us. But I need you to know this, it's a long-term process. So add the race to the education. He continues, furthermore, verse 9, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them due respect. Shall we not much more be readily subject to the Father of spirits and of our lives? He tells us, listen, you know if you were doing something wrong, you would expect your father to discipline you. I tell you that the world is in the problem it is because parents do not discipline their children. And they are allowed to do whatever they want to do. I tell you that the Bible teaches that true love with a father, a mother, and and a child is that they put boundaries around them. They don't let them go crazy. And they don't let them go worldly. They don't just say, oh, well, that's how they're going to be. No, the Bible says there are true parameters that you as a parent Put around that child. Therefore, um, no, where did it go? Furthermore, yes, verse 10. For they indeed for a few days chasten us as it seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. So he tells us, listen, most of the time your, when you were being chastised or schooled with your human parent, it was for a, uh, it was for a time. I, I love how the Holy Spirit puts this in. I'm thankful for it because I'm a parent as seemed best to them. It doesn't mean that we, we know everything as a parent. Shh, don't tell them. We don't know anything. Do you remember being a parent like, I don't even know what to do because that Dr. Spock book's all wrong. Right, which we proved later on in his life. He said it was all wrong. And there was a generation of people raising children based on a book that was flawed. But if they had raised a generation of kids on the Bible and what God says and not man, man, things would be a lot different in this country, especially you 60s people. I've told you once before, it's all your fault. But notice it says, it seems best to them. Listen, parents, if you're doing the best that you can by God's word, just rely upon that. Who cares what the world says? Who cares if your kid says it's not fair? (laughs) Welcome to life on planet Earth. It's not fair. Nothing is fair, and there's no equality like that. It's the human experience. But he says... Now, no chastening seems to be joyful in, in, 
for the present. Don't you love how the writer says that? It's like he got whacked as a kid himself. But painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So no chastening seems to be joyful. Did you ever say to your parent, parent, I am so excited that you are about to spank me. I've been waiting all day for you. I have got this implement of pain. Here you go. Whack away. No one. But notice it also says that it's painful because the Bible does say that. There is a reason why God put a lot of flesh in that area. That's what the Bible says and that it's okay. He says, yeah, it's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, our our author here is not trying to deny the unpleasant nature of a heavenly spanking in our life or heavenly discipline. But he does want us to look beyond the process and see the result. And that's what's important. Because is the fruit evident in your own life? This peaceable fruit of righteousness? The reason why many live one crisis after another is because they are either blind to God's chastening or they are resisting it altogether. And notice at the end of that, it proves that they have not been trained by it. See, the training is part of it. You're going through this training, and what you're getting on the other side is peaceable fruit of righteousness, right on living. Again, this group never experiences peaceable fruit of righteousness because they have never been trained by God. And that word trained by God in the Greek is a word that is used in athletics. (laughs) It means to be trained by in agony. There is a reason why these uh, Olympians train so long and so hard. Why do they do that? For a little piece of round metal back then, it it was some ivy that you could pull off your neighbor's side of his property. But to them, it was the victor's crown. They, they put their body into submission, train their body, discipline their body so that they could win this event. And yet, we as believers, we push against that. Again, we, we need to be and should want to be trained in God's spiritual Olympics. Guys, God's got a purpose for training everybody. Think about David being attacked by a lion when he was just a boy tending the sheep. Remember that? David tells us that he fought off a lion as a young boy. I don't know about you, but think about that, Mom, Dad, your eight-year-old's out there with the sheep, and he comes in. Honey, what'd you do today? Well, had an interesting day. Oh, really? What happened? Little sheep run off? You know? No, no. A giant lion came out and tried to snatch one of the sheep, but I took it out. And then what would the mom say? You're never going out there again. That is the wrong neighborhood to be in. 
<laughs> Think about that. Why did God allow David, as a little boy, kill a lion? I mean, just the thought of that, having just a dagger, no gun, no bear spray, no lion spray, no any of those sprays, not a spear, just a dagger. Why did God allow such a terrible thing to happen to David? Did, it, did he have PTSD about a lion? Think about that. Did he think, man, I barely escaped. Lord, why was that? Why did you do that to me? But if only David could see ahead around the bend of the track, and he would see a giant standing there named Goliath. You see, God allows things like that in our life, and we wonder why this is going on, but we can't see around the bend to the giant that needs to be defeated, and David can't defeat the giant until he defeats the lion. And he knows, well, I beat up a lion, and I was eight. I'm pretty sure I can take this guy out. And I brought four extra stones because Goliath had brothers. I love that about David. He knew that Goliath, he said, when I'm done with this guy, I'm going after your whole family. It's like he was Sicilian or something. (laughs) You'll get that later. (laughs) God was preparing David. Years before David stood before the Goliath. And that's what God is trying to tell us in this section. Why are the Hebrews going what they are going through what they are going through? Why do we go through the trials and the tribulations and this education that God has us through? Why did God allow that to happen in your own life? Let me tell you from my wife and my experience, it is so that you can minister to people who walk through the door. Because whatever you have gone through, I'm telling you, somebody needs to hear what God did victoriously in your life. That's why it's important to be in the body of Christ. That's why it's important to talk to people and not just say, I'm fine. Because you could be sitting next to the person who lost whatever like you lost. And you can say, the race can be won. It can be run in faith. Well, that's it. <laughs> I was going to like conclude it with some big statement, but I don't have that tonight. <laughs> Read ahead next week as we continue. I, I just love the next verse because it just speaks to, we should, be keep, we should keep going. He says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. That's why we are gathered together as the body of Christ. That's why you go through what you go through so that those who come in the door who are their hands hanging down and feeble needs, feeble needs? knees can be ministered to stop saying lord why am i here and say what are we going to do with this education that i'm in 
Guys, graduate to the next level. Get to the next grade with the Lord. (laughs) You got more to do until he calls us home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the writer to the Hebrews. We pray, Lord, like these Hebrews, that we would not go back into the things of the world, our worldly pursuits, that, Lord, tonight you challenge us with our weights. We know about the sins which so easily ensnare us, but it's the liberties that we often have that can cause us to be ineffective for you. And so, Lord, that you would challenge us tonight, that you would call upon us to lay aside those lates. Again, that might be fine for the next believer in the next chair, but not for us. And so, Lord, thank you for (laughs) this education. Thank you for the chastisement and the rebuking from time to time. We thank you for the trials and the tribulations that we go through that we might be a benefit and a help to others. And Lord, let us run our own race. Let us be focused on ourself and what we are doing for you and not what others are doing or other ministries or other churches. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that you do give us. We love you and we thank you for this night in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.